The suspect in the massive leak of classified intelligence documents makes his first appearance in Boston federal court. The 21-year-old National Guardsman was charged with unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information. He has yet to enter a plea. Our story is ahead on this Friday, April 14th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Ukraine needs billions of dollars to reconstruct. The country's prime minister is in Washington, D.C. to meet finance ministers and government officials from around the world to ask for help. And five years ago, YouTube personality Jake Paul started boxing, and he's ushered in a wave of other online names into the sport. A lot of people felt like it was an insult to proper boxing, that these punk kids from the internet were claiming that they were going to be champions. But that sentiment has changed. The rise of YouTube boxers coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court has waded into the controversy over a pill that terminates pregnancies. Justice Samuel Alito has just issued an order temporarily halting a lower court ruling that puts restrictions on the drug mifepristone. This coming after the Justice Department and a New York-based drug manufacturer asked the high court to block such rulings. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports on the emergency request filed earlier today. The administration brief used the strongest language in urging the court to block the lower court orders. Quote, the district court countermanded the scientific judgment the FDA has maintained across five administrations, nullified the approval of a drug that's been safely used by millions of Americans over more than two decades, and upset reliance interests in the healthcare system that depends on the availability of mifeprestone as an alternative to surgical abortion for women who choose to lawfully terminate their early pregnancies. And the administration said those harms would be felt throughout the nation because mifeprestone has lawful uses in every state, for instance, to treat women who have miscarried. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The 21-year-old National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents will be detained without bail until at least next week. Soraya Wintersmith of member station GBH was at the federal courthouse in Boston where Jack Teixeira made his first appearance. Teixeira sat quietly as the judge informed him of the two charges against him, unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information and unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. If convicted of both, he could be sentenced to as much as 15 years in prison. Members of Teixeira's family stayed quiet in the courtroom up until he was handcuffed and escorted away by multiple court marshals, at which point a man shouted out, I love you, Jack. Teixeira is now scheduled to appear in court again Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Soraya Wintersmith in Boston. Once again, the National Rifle Association is holding an annual convention that follows a series of recent mass shootings. In Indianapolis today, former Vice President Mike Pence referenced the recent attacks in Louisville and Nashville as he criticized calls for more gun control. We don't need gun control. We need crime control. We don't need lectures about the liberties of law-abiding citizens. We need solutions to protect our kids. As Pence took the stage, he faced a mix of boos and applause. Several confirmed and expected Republican presidential candidates are expected at the gathering this weekend. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 143 points before the close at 33,886. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're learning more about the FBI's investigation into Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira. According to an FBI affidavit released today, the social media platform which Teixeira allegedly posted the top-secret military documents provided billing information to help lead agents to the suspect. Court documents alleged Teixeira was detected searching for the word leak in classified government records the day the New York Times reported on the breach first. The FBI believes he was searching to find out whether the intelligence community yet knew who leaked the documents. Tomorrow is one Boston day. It marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. WBUR's Dave Faniff has more. The Day of Community Projects was established to recognize the resiliency, strength, and generosity of people in response to the bombing. The Mayor's Communications Director, Jessica Pierre, says the volunteer opportunities are a way for the city to come together as a community. People can donate blood, park cleanups, and beach cleanup to an event that we're hosting as well, where we're honoring Mel King. We're inviting people to come and write and get into a creative space to really show honor to Mel King's life and legacy. Or, she says, it could be something as nice and simple as holding a door open for someone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Parking at Logan Airport will soon be difficult. This afternoon, Massport officials announced parking at Logan itself and at Logan Express shuttle bus sites are already near capacity. Next week is April school vacation week, so a lot of people are traveling. Airport officials recommend passengers take public transportation to and from the airport and have someone drop them off and pick them up from Logan Express sites. For the second straight day, Boston has set a new record high temperature. The thermometer hit 83 degrees this afternoon at Logan. That broke the previous record high for April 14th of 81 degrees set on this date in 1945. Worcester and Providence also set new records high for the day. So much for the summer temperatures, though, after today. Should head down to the mid-40s tonight, then only make it to the mid-50s for tomorrow and Sunday. Partly sunny tomorrow, mainly sunny on Sunday. Chance of showers. Monday's holiday is looking cloudy as of now with a chance of showers. Highs just about 60. 71 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. WBUR supporters include Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. A little bit later, we'll remember the life of Rachel Pollock, a science fiction writer who created DC Comics' first transgender superhero and who changed the way people read tarot cards. Before that, we turn to the Air National Guardsman, accused of leaking a trove of U.S. intelligence documents. 21-year-old Jack Deshira is facing charges under the Espionage Act. Today, he made his initial appearance in federal court in Boston, where a judge ordered that he remain in custody for now. NPR just correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering this. Uh, he joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. So Tashir was arrested yesterday. He was mm-hmm. in court today. What's he charged with? Well, according to court papers, Tashira faces two charges here. One is for the unauthorized removal of classified documents, and the other is for the unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information. Uh, Tashira was, as you said, in, fo- in federal court this morning in Boston. I was dressed in a khaki prison uniform. The hearing was very brief. Uh, and as you mentioned, a federal magistrate judge ordered that he be held pending a detention hearing next Wednesday. What else did we learn from the charging documents that were unsealed today? Well, we learned a bit more about Tashira himself. We've previously reported that he worked at the 102nd Military Intelligence Wing at Otis uh, Air National Guard Base in Cape Cod. Court papers say Tashira enlisted in September of 2019. Mm -hmm. Uh, He holds the rank of Airman First Class 
and was working as a cyber defense operations journeyman at the base. Mm -hmm. In that position, he had top secret security clearance, uh, and he also had access to another realm of basically uh, more sensitive information. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of public reporting about how the leak occurred. Uh, were there any additional details you learned today? Well, you're right. There has been a lot in the in the public realm about how these intelligence materials, just as a reminder, a lot of them related to the war in Ukraine, yeah. uh, how they ended up online. Um, court papers say that Tashira began posting classified information in December on a social media platform. Uh, court papers don't identify the platform, but we know, of course, that it's Discord, mm -hmm. uh, something popular With gamers, among yeah. gamers, right? Uh, initially, Tashira was allegedly just posting paragraphs of text from classified information. But then in January, according to court papers, he started posting photographs mm -hmm. of U.S. government documents that had classification markings on them. Tashira allegedly started taking photographs because he was worried that he might be discovered transcribing these documents at work. So instead of doing that, he took them to his home and was taking pictures of huh. them. Uh, how did the authorities manage to track this leak back to Tashira? Well, the, the leaked materials were out there for a while before yeah. anyone noticed in the government. But once folks in the U.S. government did catch wind that these documents were out in the wild, so to speak, they moved pretty fast. Uh, the FBI appears to have gotten a lot of information from an unnamed witness identified in court papers only as user one. Uh, user one was in the Discord group along with Tashira. Uh, user one told the FBI that uh, they'd spoken to Tashira over video chat. Uh, and user one was able to actually identify Tashira for the FBI uh, based on Tashira's driver's license photo. Uh, the FBI also got records from Discord, so account and subscriber information. Mm -hmm. uh, that includes Tashira's name, uh, his billing information, uh, an address in North Dighton, Massachusetts. And of course, it was at a home in North Dighton uh, that a heavily armed SWAT team yesterday, as we saw, rolled up and uh, ended up arresting Tashira there. There have been like a, a series of leaks over the past decade plus, right? I'm thinking about like there's WikiLeaks, mm -hmm. there's Edward Snowden. What steps is the government taking to tamp down on these leaks? Well, first off, I think it's it's important to say that this leak appears to be different in many ways from the WikiLeaks leaks and the and, and the Snowden leak, yeah. uh, including just in terms of scale, the vast scale uh, of those compared to this and the sensitivity of the materials. Um, as far as trying to prevent future leaks, President Biden today said that he's directed the military uh, and U.S. intelligence agencies to tighten up how they handle sensitive information. This has been a problem for a long time. Um, Attorney General Merrick Garland also talked about this today. Uh, and he noted, importantly, that you know there are penalties, very serious penalties for leaking classified information. And he said that this prosecution is a reminder to those people who are entrusted with protecting U.S. secrets, how important it is to do so and how important it is not to spill those secrets. Hmm. NPR's Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you. Next week, opening arguments begin in the massive defamation case that pits Dominion voting systems against Fox News. Dominion wants $1.6 billion in damages. But as Colorado Public Radio's Benta Berkland reports, that damage figure may be difficult to prove. After the last presidential election, Dominion voting systems became the epicenter of false claims of a stolen election, claims it says were spread widely by conservative networks like Fox News. Sydney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. That's to put it mildly. The a judge has already ruled that statements made about Dominion on some Fox News shows were false. If the jury finds Fox liable for those lies, it will decide how much it should have to pay. Dominion, which is based in Denver, 
argues that the company's brand and business have been destroyed. CEO John Poulos spoke to CBS's 60 Minutes last year. People have been put into danger. Their families have been put into danger. Their lives have been upended and all because of lies. It was a very clear calculation that they knew there were lies and they were repeating them and endorsing them. But to succeed in court, Dominion needs to show how the hits to its reputation weren't just hard on employees, but have also resulted in large financial losses. You're talking about economic damages and economic disturbance. So emotional feelings, hurt feelings, emotional damages, those kind of things typically are not going to enter into the calculation. Len Niehoff is a law professor at the University of Michigan. In court filings, Dominion laid out its damage claims. $16 million in profits, more than $70 million in potential business, and more than $900 million in value. But Niehoff says those claims could be challenging to prove. It can be very hard to show that people who didn't do business with you didn't do it for this reason as opposed to for some other reason. Fox News says Dominion's claims are flawed and nothing more than a money grab by the private equity fund that controls the company. It points to Dominion's stronger-than-expected revenues last year and says the company's actually flourishing. But recent moves in Shasta County, California, are a sign of what Dominion is concerned about. County supervisors there recently canceled Dominion's contract, citing debunked conspiracy theories. Still, many other conservative areas are sticking with Dominion. The real pushback is people don't want me to use machines, period. But at the end of the day, I was voted in to uphold the Constitution and uphold the laws of our state. And we're required to tabulate and we're required to have machines in the voting center. So I did what I had to do. Justin Grantham heads the Colorado County Clerks Association. He's a Republican and from a deep red county. And he recently renewed the county's contract with Dominion. He says audits show the machines are accurate and switching companies isn't feasible. Now you're talking about learning how to use the system, learning how to program the ballots in the election, learning how to just figure out the tabulation and the software and the hardware. Dominion has actually seen a net increase in the number of jurisdictions using its equipment since 2020. That's according to data from the election security nonprofit Verified Voting. CEO Pamela Smith says she's not surprised. Most jurisdictions don't change their voting systems like every couple of years, right? They change them 10 years, 15 years, if they can hold on for a really long time, they will, you know, but it's also hard to predict what happens down the road. Smith says the biggest impact likely won't be known for years after current voting machine contracts come due. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Denver. Sales of tarot cards have more than doubled in recent years. And today, we remember the person who wrote the quintessential book on tarot, Rachel Pollack. Pollack died earlier this month. She was 77 years old. She was also a revered figure for many in the fantasy and comic book worlds. Ajwa Jima Brimpong has our remembrance. Rachel Pollack helped transform tarot from a practice that was widely dismissed as an esoteric parlor trick 
into a way of connecting with yourself that felt personal and political. She talks about that in a 2019 YouTube interview with Masters of the Tarot. I think that for us, we were trying to kind of break the tarot free from what it had been and open up a whole new way of being. Pollock's book, 78 Degrees of Wisdom, came out in 1980. It made tarot less cheesy and more of a feminist practice that helped many people connect to the divine. Pollock delighted in challenging norms of gender and sexuality. In 1993, she took over the DC Comics Doom Patrol series, where she created one of the first transgender superheroes. Her name was Coagula, and her first foil was a villain named Codpiece. Since Codpiece's whole issue is being ashamed of himself and ashamed of his sexuality, um, I should have someone who's overcome shame. That's Rachel Pollack in a 2022 interview explaining Coagula's origin story on the Mega Brain Comics YouTube channel. For the many transgender people at that time, you know, the big issue was overcoming society's feeling we should be ashamed of ourselves and past and all these other kinds of terrible things. So I just invented this character. Pollock authored more than 40 books, including science fiction novels that won the Arthur C. Clarke and World Fantasy Awards. Rachel Pollock created worlds that were both gleefully bizarre and deeply spiritual. A refuge for weirdos. Without shame. For NPR News, I'm Ajua Jimma Brempong. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this Friday afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, conflicting reactions to California Senator Dianne Feinstein's absence from Washington because of medical issues. She has not cast a vote in the chamber since February. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And the lyric stage with Sister Act, and then there were nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. The Dow fell four-tenths of a percent today, but still posted its fourth straight positive week. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. S&P fell about a fifth of a percent. NASDAQ dropped about a third of a percent. A new six-story hotel is coming to South Boston. The Boston Planning and Development Agency approved the project yesterday. Developers City Realty and Rise Together will build it behind the Boston Convention Exhibition Center. The hotel will feature 72 rooms. The lot used to be the site of an auto repair garage. The time is 4.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, continuing to help those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. It's been another beautiful day. 71 degrees now in the Boston area. Should head down to the mid-40s overnight tonight with partly cloudy skies. Partly sunny for tomorrow, with temperatures in the mid-50s. Mainly cloudy on Sunday, could have some showers. 
with temperatures on Sunday again in the mid-50s, but reaching just about 60 degrees for Marathon Monday. Cloudy skies on Monday, chance of showers. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Finance ministers and government officials from around the world were in Washington this week for the annual gathering of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Among them, the Prime Minister of Ukraine. He's trying to rally the world to help rebuild his country, even as Russia continues to wage war on it. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The World Bank estimates that it will take $411 billion to rebuild Ukraine, and many here in Washington say that's a conservative estimate, one that is rising as fighting continues. President Volodymyr Zelensky told the heads of the IMF and the World Bank via video this week that countries should just confiscate Russian assets and use that to rebuild Ukraine. Russia must feel the full price of its aggression. Prime Minister Denis Michal says that was a big topic in his meetings in Washington this week as he spoke to donors about the large reconstruction price tag. So it's a huge money and we understand that not United States taxpayers, not European taxpayers shouldn't pay this amount. Uh, actually, aggressor should compensate all losses and damages for Ukraine. He did some deals in Washington, securing promises of $5 billion in aid. And he's confident that the world will be there to help Ukraine rebuild. The managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gergieva, says the Ukrainian government has done a good job collecting taxes and delivering vital services to businesses and individuals. That's despite Russia's devastating attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure. The country is performing remarkably well under the most devastating of circumstances. And that is why it has the confidence of its people and it has the confidence of the international community. The IMF recently signed a $15.5 billion loan program for Ukraine, the first time it has done so to a country in the midst of a conflict. The Biden administration has poured in tens of billions of dollars, mostly in weapons, but also to help keep the Ukrainian government afloat. And U.S. officials are vowing to help as long as it takes. Having said that, we want as long as it takes to be as short as possible. <laughs> right? That's Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo speaking to business leaders at a forum on Ukraine. We want to end this unjust war and we want to get to the business of rebuilding Ukraine and to show that your democracy will thrive, that good will prevail over evil, and then out the other side of this will be a more vibrant, thriving economy connected to the United States. But there is growing concern in Congress about the high costs of the war. Prime Minister Shmihal is trying to tamp down concerns about donor fatigue. We are very encouraged to win this war. We are very encouraged to liberate our territories. 
we are very sure in all of our partners. We, we are very united with our partners. And again and again, I will repeat, no one is fatigued. He's also trying to allay concerns about corruption in Ukraine. He says the country has taken more anti-corruption measures during the past year of war than in the more than three decades since the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became an independent state. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Jake Paul and Nate Diaz are headed to the boxing ring later this summer. I've knocked out every single person that I've fought. Talk to him, baby. Talk to him. Every single person that I've fought. If you follow MMA, you recognize Nate Diaz as a veteran fighter. But Jake Paul, well, you probably better know him as the YouTuber who got famous, pulling pranks with his brother Logan, and building an online influencer empire in the process. Five years ago, he started boxing, and since then, he's ushered in a new influx of online influencers into the sport, something we're talking about for this week's All Tech Considered. Will Caldwell wrote about it for The Observer, and he joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so when Jake Paul first got into boxing, you know, first as an amateur in 2018, then as a professional in 2020, what was, like, the reacts among like, the true boxing heads? I mean, I think it kind of provoked people quite a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people felt like it was an insult to proper boxing, that these kind of uh, punk kids from the internet were just claiming that they were going to be champions and, and that was somehow a possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and since then, has he gained like at least a, a, a begrudging respect from fans? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Jake Paul seems to, out of this whole kind of new ecosystem of sort of influencer boxers, Jake Paul seems to certainly have gained the most credibility and respect from people in the sport. But I think, generally speaking, more and more people are kind of warming to some of the other characters too. And we've been talking a lot about men, but it's not just guys, right? No, they also have women fighting as well. Um TikTok influencers. There's also been kind of OnlyFans stars as well. So yeah, it's kind of bringing in influencers from all genders, really. Yeah. You know, with this wave of influencer boxing, do they bring their fans with them? Uh, And then like, do they stick around to enjoy like the other aspects of the sport? Like do Jake Paul fans now just watch traditional boxing matches? Young people that I spoke to when I was at one of the recent matches seemed to kind of be following that route that you you suggested. They're now kind of watching more other boxing matches and is kind of bleeding into to that aspect of the sport as well. Yeah, and I imagine with the uh, influx of new fans comes an influx of money, right? Exactly. I mean, it certainly seems to be kind of lucrative whatever they're doing <laughs> yeah because like these aren't like these aren't like like bobo events at like you know logan paul's backyards they're like packing arenas right yeah so the event i went to was a kind of wembley arena you know it's a huge venue and it was filled out with people from early evening people were there to watch every single fight the the atmosphere was massive and um i mean in a way what's sort of interesting is that i think they've really kind of managed to to nail that kind of blend of sport and entertainment and they're not kind of really claiming to be traditional boxing that it's kind of a spectacle really Mm -hmm. you write in your piece that celebrity boxing isn't new but it used to be more of a a degrading spectacle and now that it's at least a a semi-serious sport right and i'm curious what's changed 
I think this was a big question for me because when you hear about kind of celebrities doing it in the past, it feels like a bit, you know, hokey. Yeah, they've run, yeah, they've run out of uh, opportunities. And okay, fine, I'll just take a check to get knocked about in a ring. These days, it seems more kind of aspirational. If you're an influencer and you get on this racket, presumably you can kind of build your brand quite significantly. And and I think also with these influencers, a lot of it is they're kind of showing their journey and development as a boxer and, and their fans and followers are watching that. And that's what, you know, I remember some of the fans in the audience I spoke to, they said that's what they, they liked about it. It didn't really matter to them that they were good at boxing or not. They enjoyed watching them try. Will Coldwell wrote about influencer boxing for The Observer. Thanks, Will. Thanks very much. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, a court appearance in Boston today for the 21-year-old charged in a massive leak of classified government documents. In the forecast, should head down to the mid-40s overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-50s. Sunday, lots of clouds, the chance of showers in the mid-50s again. Right now, Marathon Monday is looking cloudy with a chance of showers, highs about 60. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage, at The Huntington now through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Luke Burbank expressed some skepticism about a new law in Utah that keeps minors from using social media. I don't feel like there's a strong history of keeping people off of websites. Well, the thing is, I'm Peter Sagal. You don't have to prove anything to listen to this week's news quiz with champion beatboxer Kayla Milady. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The suspect connected with the leaking of highly classified documents that surfaced online was arraigned in Massachusetts today. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Air National Guard, appeared before a federal judge a day after he was arrested by the FBI. Attorney General Merrick Garland held a press conference in Washington, D.C. shortly after Teixeira was formally charged. Garland says the Pentagon has ordered a review of intelligence access within the department. The Department of Defense is leading an important effort now to evaluate 
uh, and review the national uh, security implications and most important to conduct a review of the methods of access, accountability, and control procedures. Garland didn't comment on whether the case would extend beyond the federal charges and into military court. A detention hearing is scheduled for next week. Spending at stores and restaurants dipped 1% last month compared to February. NPR's Alina Selyuk reports that's according to new data from the Commerce Department. One big reason behind the dip in retail sales were lower gas prices. Spending at gas stations declined 5.5% in March compared to February. People also bought fewer cars and car parts, electronics and clothes, and spent less at big box stores and home improvement stores. At the same time, retail spending was still higher than a year earlier, up nearly 3% from March of last year. Spending at restaurants and bars was up by 13%, while spending at online stores rose more than 12%. Inflation is certainly at play. It reached 5% last month, though that was also the lowest level reported in nearly two years. Alina Selyuk, NPR News, Washington. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 143 points. The Nasdaq fell 42. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the charges against a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman for allegedly leaking classified documents. The case has put a spotlight on his unit, the 102nd Intelligence Wing on Cape Cod. As WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, the wing is a key part of the military's intelligence work. Scott Rice is a retired three-star Air Force general. He oversaw guard units across the country, including the 102nd, at Otis Air National Guard Base. He says the secret of work saves lives. They have all these extensive networks and they receive a lot of data, uh, intelligence data like videos, pictures of uh, locations overseas, and they analyze it. They're an analytical tool to boil all that massive amount of information down to readable, understandable things, and then they pass that up to the to, to Pentagon to do something with it. Rice says the breach is an aberration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. A Massachusetts man convicted of attacking officers in the January 6th insurrection was sentenced today to nearly six years in prison. Vincent Gillespie of Athol was found guilty last year on assault and other charges. Prosecutors say Gillespie was part of the mob fighting officers when he took a police shield from them and started ramming them with it while he was screaming traitor and treason. A woman who was assaulted by a Natick police sergeant three years ago is suing him, the town, and the town's police chief at the time of the incident. The victim has filed a $1.2 million civil suit for sexual harassment in a hostile workplace. She was a Natick police dispatcher when she was assaulted by Officer James Kilty during an after-work gathering with other officers. Quilty pleaded guilty to three counts of indecent assault, and he resigned last year. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Weston Nurseries. Welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham. WestonNurseries.com. The work week is coming to a mighty nice end. Temperatures are becoming more spring-like at 69 degrees now. Tonight it should fall as far as 45 degrees, partly cloudy, breezy, and dry. Tomorrow's daytime high should only make it to the mid-50s, partly sunny skies. Sunday should be in the mid-50s again with a cover of clouds for the day. Chance of some rain before noontime on Sunday. Again, 69 degrees now in Boston at 435. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Today, it remains unclear when California Senator Dianne Feinstein will return to Washington. She has not voted since February because of complications from shingles. But plenty of her fellow California Democrats are wondering if their 89-year-old senator will be back. While she's asked to be temporarily replaced on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrats have a thin 51 to 49 majority in the Senate, and some are calling for her to step down from Congress entirely. All I said is what people know privately, that California has basically had an absentee senator. California Congressman Ro Khanna is one of those voices, and he spoke with our show yesterday. For more, let's bring in Christopher Catalago. He's Politico's White House correspondent based in Sacramento. Hey. Hey, how are you? I am well. Okay, Chris, so when I spoke with Congressman Khanna yesterday, he applied that in calling for Senator Feinstein to step down. He was essentially just saying publicly what a lot of folks on Capitol Hill are saying and thinking privately. So I'm curious, what are you hearing from other members of Congress and particularly her colleagues in the California delegation? I think it's really a mix. There are several members who do want to give her a little bit more time to recover here to see if she can get back and vote consistently in D.C. And if she can, they will definitely support her. We had a story talking with some of her confidants, and this was earlier in the week, and and their point was that this had clearly kind of taken a turn, these shingles, and it did not appear to them like they could confidently say she would get back. For all their kind of respect and loyalty for Senator Feinstein, they understand sort of the real-world implications. Based on those conversations that you and your colleagues have been having with Senator Feinstein's confidants, those close to her who know her well, and her past history for that matter, do you get the sense that she would even entertain the idea of voluntarily resigning early? One of the traits of Senator Feinstein over the course of her long career has been you know, real kind of stubbornness, and that's been something that's carried her in very difficult times. And I think, you know, you're seeing that here too. Some of these calls are very similar to what we saw in 2017 when she was deciding whether to run for for re-election in 2018. And you had folks like Rokana at the time who thought that she should step aside. So there are folks on the progressive wing, folks who feel like she has kind of fallen out of step with the politics of the state. So this is the latest example they're giving now with her health for why she should step down early. So if Senator Feinstein does resign or if health reasons prove insurmountable, that means there's an open Senate seat that's up to Governor Gavin Newsom to appoint an interim senator. And then, of course, you've already got candidates in the race running to replace Senator Feinstein, who has said that she plans to retire in 2024. Let's start with um, the potential of Newsom having to appoint a replacement. Any likely front runners? Well, Newsom, let's go back to 2020. Newsom had the the other seat in California up when Vice President Kamala Harris 
became vice president. He appointed Senator Alex Padilla, which was historic in its own right, uh, giving the state a Latino senator. But he also made a very important promise at the time to appoint a black woman to the other Senate seat should it come up. You know, the big question, I think, for him starting out is, does he want to, as best as he can tell, appoint someone who's going to be seen more as a caretaker for this seat, which would allow him potentially to stay out of the race that's going on between members of Congress, Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, and Katie Porter. Um, He could also very much disrupt this race by appointing Barbara Lee um, to the Senate seat. She would then be running as a member of the Senate, which could give her a big leg up. Politico's Christopher Catalago, thank you. Thank you so much. HBO's Emmy-winning dark comedy, Barry, returns for its fourth and last season on Sunday. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says the show's final episodes challenge audiences by growing darker and even more ambitious. Few TV shows push creative boundaries like Barry, especially in this final season, which opens with its darkest story yet. Bill Hader's Barry Berkman, a hitman-turned-actor, is in jail, arrested for killing the girlfriend of his acting teacher. Barry uses his one phone call to ring up that acting teacher, Gene Cousineau, played with deaf perfection by Henry Winkler, to ask if he set him up. Mr. Cousineau, are you mad at me? Because I love you. What did you say? I said I love you. Hey, Barry? Yeah? I got you. This is the emotional minefield Barry faces early in this season, as people he loves turn on him after they realize his true nature. But we also see where their true natures come from. Barry's self-absorbed girlfriend Sally, played by Sarah Goldberg, tries to find sympathy with an equally withholding mother. I think I might actually be in a lot of trouble. You sure can, Beckham. Mom, I need your help. I can't respond to you if you're going to scream at you! Yeah, not a lot of laughs there. The show's darkly absurd humor works better when the story shifts to Chechen gangster Noho Hank, who hopes to unite rival gangs in an illegal scheme working with his boyfriend, Bolivian gangster Cristobal. Hank, played by Anthony Kerrigan, pitches the gangs with Cristobal in, where else, a meeting room at the Dave & Buster's Arcade. I get that you may need to hold your nose when working with someone who might have killed a close friend or family member. That sucks, but that will fade away when you see the amazing bounty of power that comes with working together. There must be zero bloodshed. Hello, can I start you guys with an appetizer? Uh, Yes, we'll have some jalapeno poppers for the table, please. That's how Barry's unique tone works, placing scenes with huge dramatic heft or violence right next to mundane moments from everyday life to make you laugh even while you're horrified. Through it all in this final season, the series asks in a more pointed and creative way the same question it's been asking since the show began. If you're a terrible person and you know it, can you change? Hader deserves all kinds of credit here, and not just for playing an unpredictable killer like Barry with such heart and good intentions that audiences still care about him. As director of all eight final episodes, he's created a visual style that's daring and creative, punctuating jokes with a deft camera move or expertly plotted shot. By the time Sally confronts acting teacher Jean for not telling her that Barry was a killer, another ugly truth emerges— They didn't see Barry's issues because he made them feel good about their own shortcomings. I was the one living with him. 
And you're telling me that you didn't see one sign? He was obsessed with us. He treated us like superstars. As actors, that's really hard to resist. When the world is against you, your back is against the wall, there is only one thing you can do. What? Teach. Deep in the final season's episodes, I've seen seven of the final eight, there's a significant change. Now, I won't say what because it's a major spoiler, but it did leave me wondering if producers really knew how to end this story in a way that makes the whole series journey worthwhile. I hope they do, because a series that's mined such thrilling moments by brilliantly pushing the creative envelope deserves a finale that rewards its ambitious vision. I'm Eric Dickens. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Raghavan Iyer, the chef who did so much to popularize Indian cooking in the U.S., has died after years of cancer treatments. He released his final book, On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World, just a couple months ago. And our co-host Ari Shapiro spoke with him about it then, and his experiences with sickness that led him to launch a new project on revival foods, comfort foods that heal. You look at cultures that inherently have foods that the West has not embraced in terms of its medicinal outreach. Um, I'm looking at any dishes like pho, for instance, from Vietnam. and Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup, yeah. Uh-huh. And then you look at, you know, rasam, for instance, which is the tamarind brothy dish from southern India. And so all of these, I feel, are such important tools and fighting this um, regiment that we have in a body that's regulated by disease. And uh, so I feel like it is one of those um, best things you can armor yourself with. I don't want you to publicly shame a medical professional, but what was the food a doctor <laughs> told you to eat as you were recovering that made you say, are you kidding me? You're a medical expert. <laughs> he came from a good place and he said, uh, <laughs> You know, how about tomato soup? And so when I called the hospital cafeteria, which has got awful, and I ordered tomato soup, and I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, so I said, can you tell me if the soup is vegetarian-based? And she goes, hang on, let me take a look at the Campbell's soup can. The Campbell's soup can. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh my God, I'm in it. So. And meanwhile, what was the recovery food that you were really craving? Idli's, foods from my childhood, which is uh, it's a steamed... Uh, fermented rice lentil cakes and those are comforting and they put on weight and i just <laughs> i love it and, <laughs> and it became one of those uh, iconic foods that helped me uh, recover at least 20 of the 30 pounds that i lost mm. do you want to take a moment or are you all right do you want to I'm get a drink right. of water okay yeah yeah no, i'm okay well this is a question that I've never asked a guest in 20 years of doing interviews, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way, but as someone who has built his life around food mm -hmm. and who sees the end approaching, mm -hmm. have you decided what you want served at your funeral? Yes. Uh, you is. have. <laughs> What's the menu? Oh, guys, all Bombay street foods, <laughs> foods <laughs> that I grew up with. and. Uh... Can you tell us a few things that are on the menu you've drawn up? Um, one is uh, a uh, comfort food, and I always call it a, an adult 
savory cereal. It's rice puffs and crispy chickpea flour noodles with unripe mango and mm. potatoes and black salt. And I've got um, another one, which is like a, a potato pate with vegetables on a, a slice of bread, which is uh, then slathered on with a ton of butter and you pan fry the bread slices in them, you know, and... Uh, um, Ari, you know you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can think of no better tribute for you than for people to eat well and think thank of you, you while they do it. Well, thank you so much. Raghavan Ayer. He died on March 31st, 2023. We followed up with his publicist who told us a celebration has been planned next month to honor Ayer's memory and that everyone will enjoy the delicious comfort foods that Ayer loved so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, finding meaningful work, a key to recovery for a married couple, both of whom lost limbs in the marathon bombing 10 years ago. That story's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. The Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass, Guides on Buying and Selling Real Estate in Greater Boston, available at mraboston.com slash WBUR. And Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, heading down to the mid-40s and then making it only to the mid-50s for both tomorrow and Sunday. Partly sunny skies tomorrow, mainly cloudy for Sunday. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra. On Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jessica Kensky and Patrick Downs were newlyweds in 2013, eager to build a life together. But everything changed that April when they went to Boylston Street to watch the Boston Marathon. They were standing near the finish line when two bombs exploded. Three people died. Seventeen people lost limbs. Kensky lost a leg, and so did Downs. After we were hurt, we were fully dependent on other people for everything. It was like we were children again. Their parents had to make medical decisions for them, help them in the bathroom, and help them get dressed. Downs made steady progress, but Kensky suffered one complication after another. I just had infections and falls and poor wound healing and you name it, I, I had it. The leg she did not lose in the bombing was badly damaged. She was in relentless pain. 
Kensky was so low, she didn't even want to leave their apartment in Medford. That's when her father, who was a doctor, pitched an idea. Get out of Boston and move to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Walter Reed, a military hospital. They were civilians, but they became part of the fold. They stayed at Walter Reed for three years. They got care from doctors and therapists who were the most experienced with amputations. During that time, Kensky decided to have her second leg removed. Down says they were recovering alongside troops with wounds even more severe. It ended up being a really special place for us. It was the place where Jess was able to make really complex and agonizing decisions about her body that have allowed her to be as mobile as she is today. And it was also a place where we made these lifelong friendships with people who we would likely not have otherwise crossed paths with. I think in addition to that, I would say it was the expectation at Walter Reed that you would get back to all you were doing before and then some. And I think when that becomes the expectation, things start to come together. For example, skiing. Kensky says she didn't like to ski when she had two legs. But Walter Reed put her and Downs on a plane to Colorado with some injured veterans also in treatment, and they skied Breckenridge, not even the bunny slope. They were discharged from Walter Reed in 2017. Kensky was ready to get back to work as an oncology nurse at Mass General Hospital, and Downs wanted to get to work as a clinical psychologist. But he hit a low point. I was really in this philosophical place of you survive something, you almost die. For what reason? What am I supposed to do with all of this? And the only thing that I could really come up with is to be in service of other people. But I didn't know that I could really be of service to other people because I felt so depleted. Hmm. I was just exhausted. And I didn't want to be a psychologist who didn't have empathy. <laughs> that wouldn't work so well. Some of Down's friends worked at Home Base, the mental health program run by Mass General. It's specifically for veterans. They asked him if he wanted to do a fellowship there. It was in those moments that I started to find my purpose again and realized that all that we had experienced actually could make a positive contribution for other people. So these patients are vets and obviously in need of psychological help. Do you tell them that you're a marathon survivor? No, I, I haven't shared it with them. Sometimes they find it out on their own. When they Google you. Yeah, people tend to Google their therapists. Their <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it has been emotional at times when, we're, when we talk about it, but I've also found that it can be a really powerful therapeutic tool. Even though you usually don't share your experience with your patients, I wonder how that experience, having PTSD, having many physical trials to go through, how that presents itself, how it helps you, how it helps them, your patients? I'd like to think that it helps me better be aware of when someone's in a stuck pattern of thinking about the world in a negative way. I had no appreciation for the many ripple effects that trauma has. It impacts your self-identity, your relationships, your work, your leisure time, the way you see the world. I mean, it just permeates everything. For both of you, after, as you said, spending so many years under medical care, um, you're now the healers. What does that feel like? Do you think of it that way? No. I mean, I recognize that I'm in a healing role and that people are coming to me with perhaps that expectation. But 
for me, it really does feel like a collaborative process to help them figure out what their meaning and purpose is again. Well said. Um, I think because I'm in a little bit of a different place, you know, in this cancer world, I think sometimes clinicians can try to protect themselves, think that there's something about us that we're never going to be in that seat. But I think that my life experience thus far has shown me that it's totally random who ends up in that seat. Kensky says a few years ago, her dad was in that seat. He was the one who got them to go to Walter Reed and was a huge help in her recovery. She says he was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer and died just a year later. His death looms larger to her today than being a bombing survivor. And I think how important it is to reinforce the randomness of it, because I think we as humans can get into guilt and shame and what did I do wrong and I should have, I should have gone to the doctor sooner. And I think for a lot of my patients, it's important to hold up a different mirror sometimes. It's so important, I think, for both of us to be able to bear witness to other people's suffering and to be able to validate whatever it is that they're going through and let them know that people see how hard they're working. People we've never met before have been in our corner, have cheered us on, have told our story, have listened to our story. And that's not true for most people who experience trauma. They often do it very much alone. Kensky says she's had a lot of support as she's gone back to her job as an oncology nurse. Work makes life feel normal again. When I put on scrubs again and my badge and, you know, went into work, it was like getting a part of myself back. I have had a lot of big moments in my recovery, but that's just definitely at the top of the list. I mean, it was just so important for people to see me like that again. I guess, you know, I think until we got to start putting pieces of our life back together, I felt like I was just a Boston Marathon survivor instead of and this and this and this. You know, it was being responsible again, taking care of other people, having coworkers and colleagues and friends who knew who knew me. It was work priceless. drama. Yeah. You know, having to be responsible for something, having to show up on time. Yeah having to do notes in our medical record system, you know, those things that people get annoyed about. But it's good to, like, have some of those annoyances back because that's what we all have in our work lives. Right. Normal humdrum. Right. Yes. Pain in the neck. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, congratulations on all that you've accomplished. Thank you, both of Thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That's nurse Jessica Kensky and her husband, psychologist Patrick Downs, 10 years after they survived the Boston Marathon bombings. Our coverage of the bombings 10 years later continues tomorrow on WBUR's Weekend Edition Saturday. Sharon Brody visits the finish line to hear how Bostonians are remembering the events of that day. We'll hear how people's reflections on the bombings changed them and the city. That's tomorrow morning starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Procter & Gamble, 
maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa, with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A Massachusetts Air National Guardsman is still in custody after he appeared in federal court in Boston today, accused of leaking military secrets. People who uh, sign agreements uh, to be able to receive classified documents acknowledge the importance to the national security of not uh, disclosing those documents. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, Nina Totenberg has the latest on the U.S. Supreme Court and access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. Heavy metal band Metallica has been making music for more than 40 years. What's kept them going? We love what we do. We love music so much. It excites us. I always say when Metallica gets in the room, it's fun. Metallica's new album is 72 Seasons. That's coming up. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman accused of leaking U.S. intelligence documents appeared in federal court this morning in Boston. A federal judge ordering Jack Teixeira to be held in custody for now, as we hear from NPR's Ryan Lucas. Jack Teixeira's initial court appearance comes less than 24 hours after he was arrested by the FBI at his home in North Dighton, Massachusetts. At the hearing, the court ordered that Teixeira remain in custody pending a detention hearing on Wednesday. According to an FBI affidavit, Teixeira worked as a cyber defense operations journeyman for the Massachusetts Air National Guard. He allegedly first began posting classified information on a gamer site in December. The FBI tracked Teixeira down through account and subscriber records from the gamer platform where the documents were first posted. He is charged with the unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The Supreme Court is weighing in, temporarily preserving FDA rules allowing limited access to an abortion medication, weighing in on a Texas case. Comes on the heels of lower court rulings that would limit access to the drug Mifepristone. The Justice Department and New York-based Danko Laboratories filed an emergency request today, less than two days after an appeals court ruling in a Texas case that effectively tightens rules under which the drug can be prescribed and dispensed. The battle of the, over the pill comes less than a year after conservative justices on the court reversed Roe v. Wade. A man from Iowa pleaded guilty to making violent threats against an election official in Maricopa County, Arizona, over the 2020 election. NPR's Kristen Wright reports the Department of Justice considers its prosecution of the case a clear message against election intimidation. Federal prosecutors say Mark Rissey left voicemail messages for an election official and Arizona's then-Attorney General, threatening to hang them 
He mentioned torches and pitchforks. He believed the 2020 election was stolen and wanted Maricopa County to bring charges of election fraud. The case is part of the Justice Department's Election Threats Task Force. NPR's Kristen Wright. The U.S. and South Korea staged joint Air Force drills in response to North Korea's Thursday launch of a new intercontinental ballistic missile. More from NPR's Anthony Kuhn. North Korean state television showed leader Kim Jong-un, accompanied by his wife, daughter, and sister, overseeing the launch of the new Hwasong-18. Solid fuel missiles are easier to transport, faster to launch, and harder to take out with a preemptive strike than liquid fuel ones. Kim said the new missile would allow the North to launch quick nuclear counterattacks. The U.S. and South Korea responded with Air Force drills, including at least one nuclear-capable B-52H bomber. South Korea's military says the Hwasong-18 is still under development. Experts believe additional tests of the missile will follow. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on today's court appearance by a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. Jack Teixeira is charged with leaking military intelligence. Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke about the case today and said military members with top-secret clearance understand the consequences of leaking information. People who uh, sign agreements uh, to be able to receive classified documents acknowledge the importance to the national security of not uh, disclosing those documents. Teixeira is due in court again next week. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark says today's decision by the Supreme Court on the abortion pill Mifepristone gives temporary protection to Americans. Today, the high court said federal rules that allow full access to the drug can stay in place while it hears a challenge to lower court rulings that would limit access. Clark says the fight for abortion rights is far from over despite today's ruling. And Boston is gearing up for the 127th running of the marathon on Patriots Day Monday. WBUR marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock had a chance to talk with some of the elite runners today. Here's his report. All eyes will be on Kenyan Elliot Kipchoge. Widely considered the world's greatest marathoner, he's running the Boston Marathon for the first time. Kipchoge has been enjoying the city and wants to be part of the race's history. Every athlete that college should come and run in Boston to promote the sport of running. That's why I'm here to run on Monday. Kipchoge leads a very fast men's field, and the women's field is also very strong, with a number of athletes who have run marathons faster than Boston's course record. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. For the second straight day today, Boston's hit a new record high temperature. The thermometer hit 83 degrees this afternoon at Logan Airport. That broke the previous record of 81 degrees set on this date in 1945. Worcester and Providence also set new records today. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies down to the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, look for partly sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-50s, lots of clouds around on Sunday, maybe some showers, highs in the mid-50s, and then on Marathon Monday, gray and damp, rain in the afternoon could make it to the upper 50s. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern in Africa. Learn more at AWF. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. A bit later, we're going to escape into the Ponderosa Pine Forest of eastern Washington state for a spring hike. But for now, let's turn to what has been a busy week at the Supreme Court. Earlier today, the justices issued a temporary stay in a Texas case involving access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. There's also been new investigative reporting focused on a real estate deal between Justice Clarence Thomas and a Texas bill 
billionaire. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg joins us now to wrap up the week. Hi there. Hi there. So, Nina, let's just start with what's happened today. The Supreme Court issued a temporary stay in response to the Justice Department's emergency appeal. Had that not happened, lower court orders limiting access to mifepristone would have gone into effect. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And although the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in a preliminary ruling said the drug could be used for up to seven weeks, it issued an opinion which the FDA said would cause chaos throughout the country. Okay, walk us through what the Justice Department said in its appeal. The administration brief uses unusually strong language in urging the court to block the lower court order. Here's what it said. The district court countermanded the scientific judgment the FDA has maintained across five administrations, nullified the approval of a drug that has been safely used by millions of Americans over more than two decades, and upset reliance interests in the healthcare system that depends on the availability of mifeprestone as an alternative to surgical abortion for women who choose to lawfully terminate early pregnancies. And the brief said that harms would be felt throughout the nation because in every state, including states that ban abortion, mifepristone has lawful uses, for instance, to treat women who are miscarrying. As I understand it, the Biden administration also argues that the challengers had no right to be in court at all. What did they say? Yes, the administration argues first that the anti-abortion doctors who brought this case have no legal standing to challenge the FDA regulations because they have no concrete stake in the drug. They neither take it nor prescribe it, and they haven't come up with a woman who claims to have been injured by the drug. What about the changes in the last several years in the FDA's regulations allowing telemedicine appointments to get the drug instead of in-person appointments, for example, and allowing the drug to be sent to patients by mail? The Fifth Circuit, like federal district court judge Matthew Kazmark, apparently didn't believe the numerous studies on the safety of those provisions and invalidated them, too. So, Nina, where does this leave us with all of this? You know, this is a, a, a huge case, Juana. It's the biggest case at the Supreme Court since it overturned Roe. And this time, the business community is lined up with the Biden administration because they're terrified that the entire regulatory structure of the FDA and its job to ensure safe medications is at stake. The justices this afternoon granted what's called an administrative stay, blocking the lower court orders until April 19th. That's not very long, and it freezes the status quo allowing the current drug regimen to remain in place while the other side has time to file a reply to the government's appeal. And what the court does after that, I have no idea. The government, is, in its brief today, stresses how complicated the issues are. So the court, I think, basically has three choices, maybe more that I haven't thought of. One, it could hear the case now on an expedited basis, but there are problems with doing that. Um, there's a very narrow window to hear this case, and we're about to have the last round of arguments at the court, and it's already way behind this term in producing opinions. If it doesn't want to do it in a rushed fashion, the court could grant a more permanent stay, preserving the status quo, and hear arguments in October at the start of the next term. And then there's a third thing the court could do. It could grant the stay and send the case back to the Fifth Circuit so those judges can actually hear arguments in the case and render a formal decision instead of this interim opinion. And then the Supreme Court could hear it in October. 
So, Nina, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> I don't really know. But there are, I really don't think there are five votes on this court to uphold all of the problematic things in these lower court opinions. And, you know, lastly, I do want to turn a minute to Justice Clarence Thomas and the newest revelations this week from the investigative outlet ProPublica that his friend Harlan Crow, who's a Republican mega donor, paid more than $130,000 for a number of properties owned by Thomas and his relatives in Georgia. The justice did not disclose that. Will the court have anything to say about that? You know, um, this all puts me in mind of the Abe Fortas affair in the late 1960s when it came out that in 1966, Justice Fortas took a secret retainer from a family foundation of Wall Street financier Lewis Wolfson, who was a friend and former client of the justices and he was and who was subsequently imprisoned for securities violations. Facing the prospect of future investigations, Chief Justice Earl Warren basically told Fortas that he had to resign, and he did. The thing is, I doubt that Chief Justice Roberts has that kind of power within this court. NPR's Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. government is accusing a 21-year-old Air National Guard member named Jack Teixeira of retaining and transmitting classified government documents. Teixeira was arrested yesterday and made his first court appearance this morning. In a criminal complaint, the FBI says the government tracked him down through social media. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin is here to talk about her reporting. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Andrew. So remind us how we got here. What is Tashira accused of? So now we know, per the new criminal complaint that came out in Boston this morning, that the government's accusing him of removing, retaining, and disseminating classified information. And those are charges that carry up to 10 years. According to his service records, he's listed as a cyber transport systems journeyman on Otis Air National Guard base on Cape Cod. Huh. Translate that for us. What does that mean he actually did? Basically, that means he was an IT employee. He was tasked with helping maintain servers, including the government's network for hosting top secret and sensitive compartmented information. That network is called the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, or JWICS, as they often refer to it in the military. He was caught through social media. According to some of his online friends that I chatted with, he started by posting these long descriptions of sensitive materials, and then he actually moved on to posting photos of the classified documents. And he was doing all of this in a chat room that he managed on a social media platform called Discord, which is popular with gamers. All of this began back in December, but he wasn't caught until members of that chat actually started spreading some of the documents outside of the private channel. What else did his friends say about him and the documents? Did they have any sense of why he chose to share the documents? Yeah, I talked with a couple of his friends. One member of the Discord channel that was there with Teixeira said that it was mostly comprised of people who followed a YouTuber called Oxide, who apparently did a lot of military role playing. They explained that Oxide is someone who attracts extremists of all kinds, but mostly people interested in guns and military gear. Mm -hmm. This person said that Teixeira typically posted about project cars and guns and a lot of laws that concern them. And then occasionally he'd get into his conservative political views. Two members of the Discord confirmed seeing the documents and one of them actually shared around 50 of them with NPR. But the members of the group didn't immediately take them seriously. One of the members I spoke with said that they actually thought the documents were for a video game called Hearts of Iron 4. It's a map strategy game. And they didn't think that they were actual classified military documents. If Tashira works in IT and security, how exactly was he caught so quickly? 
Yeah, I mean, so while this Discord channel was technically private, that doesn't mean that Teixeira didn't leave a long digital trail of clues about himself. Huh. According to the criminal complaint, he actually used his real name, his credit card, and address to register the social media profile, which is the same one that he used to post the documents. Hmm. Discord actually has a policy of complying with government requests when they aren't overly broad, at least that's what it says on their website. That kind of says that he didn't actually have very good operational security and was not exactly thinking about what he was doing doing and the potential consequences. All right, so what's next for this case? So for now, a judge in Boston's decided that Teixeira should be kept in federal custody until at least next week. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. military is still investigating which documents were posted where. They also need to keep reassuring allies who might be upset about these leaks and then figure out what, if any, changes need to be made about who has access to these kinds of files, in addition to the process for background checks. That was NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks. Spring comes slowly to the mountains and river valleys of eastern Washington, but it's finally arrived. NPR's Brian Mann went hiking in the Little Ponderé National Wildlife Refuge north of Spokane, where he found birds and sun and streams full of snowmelt. He sent an audio postcard. It's been a gray morning, but sun breaks through as they start up the trail through Ponderosa Pines. These trees are big, they're red trunks straight as Roman columns. And right away, I find myself in good company, a pair of ravens, teas, and cartwheel overhead. As I hike, the trail warms to smells of pine needles and last summer's sweet dust. I pass first wildflowers, yellow and bright, but soon among the trees, there are lingering traces of winter. The snow is almost completely gone here, at least so far along the trail, but there is just a tiny bit. It's maybe the last bit of snow hiking I do this year. This is dry country in most seasons, but down below the snowfield, I find a rushing mountain stream. Snow melt flowing fast through golden sand. Birds move through willow trees near the water as I hike on. Now I'm up high enough that the, it's rockier and there are just these enormous erratics. You know, these are boulders that were scattered here by glaciers in amongst the pines, sort of a Japanese garden on a colossal scale. It's steeper as I climb and I'm breathless, scrambling up the summit where the forest opens to views of mountains in every direction. It's still snow, a lot of snow up high. Big sweeps of sun and cloud. Perfect, radiant early spring day. There on the crown of rock, another flock of birds finds me. They ribbon through the trees as I stretch out in spring grass for a nap in the sun. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. As the world moves on from the COVID-19 pandemic, people living with long COVID can feel frustrated and alone. That story is still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. 
The Dow fell four-tenths of a percent today, but still posted its fourth straight positive week. S&P and Nasdaq also lost ground. The S&P fell about a fifth of a percent today. The Nasdaq dropped about one-third of a percent. A new six-story hotel is coming to South Boston. The city approved the project yesterday. Developers City Realty and Rise Together will build it behind the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. The hotel will feature up to 72 rooms. The lot used to be the site of an auto repair garage. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Red Sox are back at Fenway Park for a seven-game homestand that starts tonight with a visit by the Angels. Tanner Hulk will take the mound against Patrick Sandoval, 7-10 game time. 69 degrees now, so much for the summer temperatures after today. Should head down to the mid-40s tonight, only making it to the mid-50s for tomorrow and Sunday. Partly sunny tomorrow, mainly cloudy on Sunday, chance of showers. The Monday holiday Patriots Day is looking cloudy with a chance of showers, highs about 60. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Elsa Chang. Metallica has been making music for more than 40 years, from their early thrash metal days. To filling stadiums as a mainstream rock band with commercial radio hits. But maybe the most metal thing about Metallica is the hard-edged voice of drummer Lars Ulrich. What's metal? What's that? Okay, just kidding. That's not his real voice. I'm bored and lonely. I want to start a band. That is Ulrich putting on a puppet show, trying his best to channel a cactus, which was the puppet that he chose to master for a Jimmy Kimmel Live skit Wednesday night alongside his bandmates. And I'm the invisible man, and I like to party, too. <laughs> Let's be in a band together. Come on. Yeah. And that is Metallica bassist Robert Trujillo. Earlier this week, we caught up with him and Ulrich while they were shooting that skit at the Bob Baker Marionette Theater in Los Angeles. Lars, how did you get stuck playing the cactus when James gets to be the cool cat in Bell Bottoms? I knew right away that James was scouring for the coolest character on the racks, so I instantly gravitated towards the silliest one. Maybe there's something deeper there. there like is, maybe you, let you're me a guarantee you kind there, of soul. Let me guarantee you there's something <laughs> way deeper. 41 years later, absolutely, it, it digs deep. Now, if you know anything about Metallica, you've probably already guessed what this whole puppet charade's about. 
Metallica released the song Master of Puppets back in 1986, but last year, it topped the Billboard charts for the first time in the band's history, thanks to the TV show Stranger Things. When it comes to old songs like Master of Puppets, what do you think it is about some of your songs that have such staying power? For me, you know, Metallica's always been what I call cutting edge. And um, like Lars says, kind of going against the grain and taking the most grooving heavy riffs. But then all of a sudden you get these kind of gear shifts, so to speak, um, in whether it's tempo or the dynamics of the song, you know, going slow. For me, you know, before I even joined the band, I was always motivated by Metallica's music. I, in fact, I used to go running up in the Santa Monica Mountains to ride the lightning, you know, to the album, and that would motivate me for tours with actually Suicidal Tendencies, the band. <laughs> uh -huh, so, uh -huh. you know, there's something about the music that has everything you need and um, all the ingredients. Well, I love listening to you guys talk about the past, reminiscing about the past, because so much of this new album, 72 Seasons, is about revisiting the past. I know that James Hetfield, the lead singer who writes most of your lyrics, had this idea in his head that the first 72 seasons in life, those first 18 years, shape who you are the rest of your life. And I'm wondering, how much did that idea resonate with you when you first said it? Well, it, it, it resonated a lot. Uh, I'd spent a lot of my time in those first 72 seasons of my life alone, uh, kind of a misfit, kind of disenfranchised. Uh, and I think a significant part of the reason that I wanted to be in a band was I wanted to be in a, a group, a collective, a gang. I wanted to belong to something bigger than myself. And so we all have our own versions of that. You know, your first 18 years, you know, you discover love, you discover heartache. But also, you know, for me growing up in Southern California, there were things like catching your first wave, <laughs> then, you know, surfing, yeah. and it's just like, wow! Lars, you and James started Metallica when you were, what, 17, 18, right? Yeah, I was 17, yeah. And, I mean, in the last 42 years, I'm just curious, what parts of early Metallica has the band let go of as you have all evolved individually? I guess the first things that come to mind is, you know, stuff around health, just the late nights and the shenanigans, all that have pretty much all fallen to the wayside. The one thing that we also share is that as we get older, we become very comfortable sharing who we are to the world. And I enjoy it because when I am on stage or representing the band, you do feel good about what you're contributing and you know you're not letting your brothers down. You know, you become like a faction. Yeah. You become a part of the tribe. A lot of people can play, but at the same time, you're, you're touring together, you're, you're, you know, the rehearsals, your hang time, all that stuff. You know, the balance of it is super important. I mean, what strikes me the most when I read your most recent interviews now is how compassionate you guys sound when you're talking 
about each other, how much you talk about loving each other and forgiving each other for mistakes now. Tell me this, how do you think that vulnerability fits into metal? Well, I don't look at it like vulnerability and metal. I look at it uh, as four guys who are sharing an experience together and have been for the better part of, of 40 years. And we play music first and foremost uh, that we really enjoy. We love each other endlessly and we enjoy playing music together. And the vulnerability and the um, and that transparency that we're comfortable with, you know, is, is something that we're actually quite proud of. So when will you know when it's time for Metallica to stop making music? When we're 120 years old. <laughs> when, when the, when, the when elbows... The the elbows, the knees. Well, let me just say this. We love what we do. We love music so much. I mean, it excites us. I always say when Metallica gets in the room and puts the guitars on or Lars gets behind the drums, it's fun. And there's no shortage of riffs and ideas. That's probably a blessing and a curse, and that's why you hear a lot in the music because there's a lot of good stuff and it's and it's just a good time. Yeah, spiritually, I, I mean, this could, like Robert's saying, go on forever. It's the elbows and the knees and that is what may put a wrench in it eventually. There is obviously a certain physicality that it requires to play this music, but uh, that doesn't feel like it's imminent. So, uh, excuse me, I gotta run and get on my Peloton and... Uh, that, that was the ambulance coming to get Lars. <laughs> Drummer Lars Ulrich and bassist Robert Trujillo of the band Metallica. Thank you both so much. This was awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This is NPR News. <laughs> And this is 90.9 WBUR. Lots of sports happening on this Patriots Day weekend. Sox have the first of 19 straight games tonight as the Angels come to town. Tomorrow afternoon at the Garden, Celtics open their first-round playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. Monday morning, the Sox have one more game at Fenway against the Angels. Also on Monday, the Bruins host the Florida Panthers in Game 1 of the Bees' playoff series. And rumor has it there'll be a marathon Monday from Hopkinton to Boston. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org, and Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need, oceanstatejoblot.com. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Luke Burbank expressed some skepticism about a new law in Utah that keeps minors from using social media. I don't feel like there's a strong history of keeping people off of websites. Well, the thing is, I'm Peter Sagal. You don't have to prove anything to listen to this week's news quiz with champion beatboxer Kayla Milady. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily halted a Texas court ruling that restricts access to a widely used abortion pill. The decision gives the high court more time to consider a request from the Biden administration to defend the use of mifepristone from a challenge by anti-abortion groups. A federal judge has ordered the suspect accused of leaking highly classified government documents to remain in custody for now. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, was arraigned today. Yasmin Ammer from member station WBUR reports Teixeira is facing a number of charges that fall under the Espionage Act. Jack Teixeira appeared in a federal courtroom today in Boston as the judge read two charges. First, unauthorized transmission of national defense information, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. The other, willful retention and transmission of classified documents, the maximum sentence for that charge is five years. Teixeira didn't show much emotion at his court hearing until the very end when he and his father exchanged I love yous as he walked out of the courtroom. A judge will determine if he'll be held or released on bail at a hearing scheduled for Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Yasmin Ammer in Boston. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the number of deaths from fentanyl overdoses has reached unprecedented levels in the United States. From August 2021 to August 2022, 107,735 people died of drug overdoses in the United States. Two-thirds of those deaths involved synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl. The Justice Department charged 28 members of Mexico's Sinaloa drug cartel today in a fentanyl trafficking investigation. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was down 143 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. New MBTA General Manager Philip Eng says getting rid of slow zones is one of his top priorities. Eng says he's working with other T officials to determine what repairs need to be done to get trains moving faster. He tells WBUR's Morning Edition it won't be long until riders start noticing a difference. I don't have the exact dates, but the intent is to tackle the areas that are most problematic with the slowest speeds that impact the most people first. So they will start to see those benefits. And then little by little with each line, we will improve service section by section and then ultimately from end to end. Eng says he's also focusing on clear communications on delays and schedule changes as a way of rebuilding trust with T-Riders. A Massachusetts man convicted of attacking officers in the January 6th insurrection was sentenced today to nearly six years in prison. Vincent Gillespie of Athol was found guilty last year on assault and other charges. Prosecutors say Gillespie was part of the mob fighting with officers when he took a police shield from them and started ramming them with it while he was screaming traitor and treason. The daffodil has become a symbol of the Boston Marathon since the 2013 bombings. But its yellow color and early spring cheery arrival aren't the only reasons why. WBR's Amy Stockolo has more. Horticulturist Diane Valley had daffodils and cookies delivered to then-Mayor Tom Menino the day before the bombings. He was in the hospital after leg surgery. After the bombings, he discharged himself to be there for the city. Valley says Menino's tenacity and the flower's resiliency make them the perfect symbol of Boston Strong. Daffodils bloom at exactly the right time in April. They're yellow, they're cheerful, they're very hardy. They are the first to come up even when, you know, the temperatures are unreliable and the daffodils still continue to bring us the message of spring. Volunteers from Valley's nonprofit Marathon Daffodils will distribute 25,000 blooms throughout the city today. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. In the forecast overnight tonight, partly cloudy temperatures in the upper 40s. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies in the mid-50s, lots of clouds for Sunday and possibly Monday as well, maybe showers both days. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. Streams April 20th on Peacock. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This morning, a federal judge in Boston ordered a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman to remain in custody until a detention hearing next week. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira was charged in the massive leak of intelligence documents. WBUR's Yasmin Amr was inside the courtroom when Teixeira showed up today in handcuffs. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Lisa. What are the charges against him? So Teixeira faces two charges under the Federal Espionage Act. First, unauthorized transmission of national defense information that carries a maximum of 10 years in prison. The other is willful retention and transmission of classified documents. That one carries a max of five years. And how is the FBI describing what it believes Teixeira actually did? Yeah, so the FBI says Teixeira stole the documents when he was assigned to an intelligence unit at Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod. And according to federal agents, the guardsmen posted the material on Discord. That's a messaging app popular with gamers. And some of those files even contained the, quote, top secret. And according to court files, information like the military's assessment of how the war in Ukraine is going was was part of that leak. And other documents disclosed the U.S. spying on allies such as South Korea and the United Arab Emirates. So what was pretty surprising to me from the court documents is that Teixeira allegedly began posting these documents in d- as early as December 2022. So they've been out there for a while before being discovered. And as you said, some of them are even marked top secret. <clears throat> what else did you learn about the investigation today? So according to an FBI affidavit, the social media platform where Teixeira allegedly posted the top secret military documents provided billing information to help lead agents to the suspect. And and court documents also alleged, uh, alleged that Teixeira was like was detected for searching the word leak in quotes, in classified documents uh, records on the uh, on the day that The New York Times first reported on the breach. Monday this week, the FBI interviewed one social media user who allegedly communicated with Teixeira about those documents during a video chat. So that user said that Teixeira had been taking the classified documents. He'd been taking them home and photographing them. I want you to keep in mind that Teixeira has had top secret security clearance since 2021, which means to get that clearance, he actually signed a lifetime binding non-disclosure agreements saying that any unauthorized disclosure means criminal charges. So speaking in Washington, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland talked about the seriousness of this case. 
people who uh, sign agreements uh, to be able to receive classified documents acknowledge the importance to the national security of not uh, disclosing those documents. Uh, and uh, we intend to, to uh, send that message, uh, how important it is uh, to our national security. So the next steps is to Shara is scheduled to appear next Wednesday for a judge to determine whether he's going to be released on bail or are held in detention while the case moves forward. So Teixeira was in Boston federal court today. He was in the courtroom. Um, did he speak at all? So when Judge David Hennessy asked him if he understood the next steps, the defendant simply answered with a simple, yes, sir. Um, Teixeira at times looked a bit nervous, but for the most part, he just looked straight ahead at the judge. He did turn around with this weak smile and acknowledge his family members uh, sitting in the first row. And uh, at the very end of the proceeding, as he was being taken out of the courtroom, his father said out loud, I love you, to which uh, uh, Jack responded, I love you too. Did his family say anything after? Uh, reporters and photographers did see the family. There were three members walking out together. They surrounded them as they left the courthouse, but the family answered no questions. Several times I saw them push microphones out of the way, and it was an uncomfortably long walk with those reporters and photographers because the family couldn't seem to remember exactly where where they parked their car. Mm. And so in the end, they did look pretty shaken, but they did not say anything to us. Thank you, WBUR's Yasmin Nammer. Thanks again. Thank you, Lisa. News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. In a few minutes, we'll hear an update from an embattled public library in Texas. But first, to California, which recently ended its COVID emergency. The world in general seems to be moving on from the pandemic, but millions of people still suffer from lingering complications. LAist reporter Jackie Fortier found deep frustration growing among people with long COVID. During his State of the Union address, President Biden said the U.S. is recovering from the pandemic. Today, COVID no longer controls our lives. Hearing that is extremely disappointing and infuriating. Shelby Hedgecock is one of the estimated 15 million adults in the U.S. who are currently suffering from long COVID. With the federal health emergency ending in May and masks often considered a thing of the past, Hedgecock says people with long COVID feel like they're on their own. We were injured by this virus, and so patients are losing hope. We feel swept under the rug. People with long COVID are no longer contagious, but health issues related to their infection stretch on and on. It's linked to a kaleidoscope of more than 200 symptoms, says Dr. Linda Gang, co-director of the Stanford Long COVID Clinic. It is a complex, likely multi-system condition um, of manifestations that persist after COVID infection, and it can be quite debilitating. It's not yet known why some people develop long COVID and others don't, says Dr. Alice Perlowski. She's a long COVID patient and a cardiologist in L.A. There is not one specific test that can particularly identify it. I wouldn't assume that you can't get long COVID because you had COVID a couple times and were fine. The severity and duration of long COVID varies, and there's some research suggesting that antivirals may cut the risk of developing long COVID if you're newly infected. Some people recover in a few weeks, while a smaller number have debilitating and lingering health issues. Shelby Hedgecock's COVID infection left her struggling to breathe at night. For months, her brain didn't get enough oxygen. 
She wasn't able to read for 19 months. It was like there was a disconnect between the words and, <laughs> and my brain. Before the spring of 2020, when she got infected, Hedgecock's life revolved around fitness. She worked as a personal trainer in L.A. On the weekends, she competed in endurance races. Now, she doesn't leave her apartment without a medical alert button that can instantly call an ambulance. I've passed out in the shower before. I've passed out alone at home before. Hedgecock moved from L.A. back home to live with her family in Tennessee because she can't be alone. It's hard. I never dealt with anything like this before COVID, and it's been life-changing. For other patients, long COVID has damaged family relationships. Julia Landis says her extended family doesn't believe her condition is a serious illness. If this were cancer, I'd be living with family. I'm sure of it. Landis is one of an estimated 3.8 million adults in the U.S. who currently have long COVID so severe it impacts their daily lives. That's been the hardest part, is not really feeling like anybody really cares in the family. Many long COVID patients feel dismissed by doctors. Linda Rosenthal asked that staff wear masks during her visits to her Orange County cardiologist's office. If she gets COVID again, she could end up at the hospital. Days later, she received a letter. The cardiologist was no longer willing to be her doctor. It just throws like just another thing in your path that makes it more difficult to get the care that I deserve. While she starts over again in Tennessee, Shelby Hedgecock has a team of specialists helping her slowly improve. She feels lucky. She's met people online in long COVID groups who are unable to work. A lot of them have lost their life savings. You know, some are experiencing homelessness. She's worried that while researchers are looking for a treatment or cure, politicians will forget about people with long COVID struggling to live a normal life. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. This story came from NPR's partnership with LAist and KFF Health News. The book ban fight is intensified in Llano, Texas. County commissioners there held a meeting yesterday to decide whether to close their public library system entirely rather than restore 17 banned titles to their shelves, as a federal judge had ordered. The commissioners decided to keep the libraries open for now. But this is all part of a longer battle that started in 2021 when library officials began removing titles from the shelves. Many dealt with themes of LGBTQ identity or race. Others included children's titles about farting. Tina Castellon was a librarian there at the time. She resigned under duress in 2022 and joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Tina. Hello. Thank you for having me. So what's your reaction to this decision by the commissioners to keep the libraries open for now at least? So I think it's definitely a small win for us, but that there is a long road ahead of us. And it's going to take a lot of work and the community coming together to explain to the commissioners just how important this library system is for all of us. Mm-hmm. For for people who aren't familiar with like the list of books that, that are being disputed, can you tell me about mm-hmm. a few of the titles? Yes. So most of them are actually young adult in, in the teen section. So they include books like Cast, books like My Life as a Transgender Teen, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces, the butt and fart books as they're, they've been known as. When you say butt and fart books, you mean like that book, like I Need a New Butt, right? Pretty innocent children's yes, book so, stuff. Yeah. Yes. So all three, I think there's the three butt books And then there's a couple of fart books. There's like Larry the Farting Leprechaun, I think like a heart, something about a heart that farts. 
and a snowman and something else. Who farts, right? Yes, who farts, yes. <laughs> I understand you've been going to the library in Lano since you were six, right, before going on to work there. Uh, but then you eventually resigned. What, what led to that? Uh, yes, so the library itself was receiving phone calls from people calling us Nazis, saying that we're burning books, calling us like pedophiles, groomers, just all of this really negative attention. And the county had pretty much said, like, yeah, we hear it, we see it, but just ignore it, deal with it. And so I just didn't feel very supported, and I didn't feel like it was worth me staying and losing my sanity over. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're still in the community, you still go to the library, right? Oh, yeah. What does Lano stand to lose if the libraries do in fact close down? Oh, we stand to lose so much. I mean, the Lano Library is kind of the center point, and it's where you can learn how to, like, homestead and kind of survival skills, how to can things. There was a whole seed library where you could check out seeds, and you weren't required to, like, bring anything back. You just could check them out and go plant them in your garden. They've got crafter noons, Wi-Fi. I mean, even just a place that if it's too hot or your kid is bored and they don't know what to do, there are games, there's puzzles, there's movies. It's a place where you could just sit there, no worries, no questions asked. Tina Castellan is a former librarian with the Llano County Library System in Texas. Tina, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Y'all have a great day. You too. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Our coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years later continues tomorrow on WBUR's weekend edition Saturday. Sharon Brody visits the finish line to hear how Bostonians are remembering the events of that day. That's tomorrow morning starting at 8 on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy. Now enrolling for limited spaces in grades 6 to 12, boarding and day for fall 2023, neiacademy.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. 67 degrees now, a big difference from yesterday and the day before for the second straight day, though. Today, Boston has set a new record high. The thermometer hit 83 degrees this afternoon at Logan Airport. That broke the previous record of 81 degrees set on this date in 1945. Worcester and Providence also set new record highs today. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. Dig deep enough into your family history and you're guaranteed to find uncomfortable questions with unsatisfying answers. Especially in the U.S., where the family tree for many black Americans includes white slaveholders. But journalist Dion Ford dug in anyway. Her new memoir is titled Go Back and Get It, a memoir of race, inheritance, and intergenerational healing. It opens with an old family photograph. Her great-great-grandmother, Tempe Burton, sitting on the step of a porch, flanked by her daughters. Sitting in the chairs above them is the white couple who enslaved them, Elizabeth Stewart and Colonel W.R. Stewart, Ford's great-great-grandfather. Ford told me that when she discovered the picture, it was a whirlwind of emotions. Shock and amazement is what I felt. First of all, to find a picture uh, of my enslaved great-grandmother just seemed completely beyond the realm of possibility. I I sat there in my little office in shock for Mm -hmm. quite a while, trying to figure out if I was hallucinating, (laughs) if this was real, Mm -hmm. and then what to do about it. Yeah. I mean, throughout throughout the book, it it seems like it's, it's Tempe who you form this deep connection with. What was it like getting to know her, trying to figure her out? It was really remarkably moving and also really empowering. I think I, in my mind, sort of only considered the aspect of her as someone who had been oppressed as a, you know, enslaved woman. But that was half of her life. Mm -hmm. And um, seeing this other aspect of her life was just so empowering to me that she uh, would go on to um, be a property owner, that she would, you know... Have agency, make decisions. Yes, exactly. That she did all these things to make decisions, not just for herself, but for her children. Yeah. Uh, This book weaves in your personal recovery, right, from like alcohol abuse and coming to terms with your own sexual abuse as a child. And the sense I get from your book is that the path to healing is non-linear, right? Like you try a couple different things. You try like different forms of exercise, spirituality, therapy, and and they all work a little, right? Nothing works 100%. Um, and how did this project of looking back into your family tree factor into all of that? Mm. Yeah, I guess just this idea that if I could kind of tap into how someone who really is experiencing the ultimate form of oppression um, could continue, you know, and mm-hmm. could do things that totally demonstrate hope, like um, raising children, you know, it would be, I guess, a talisman for me. Hmm. So yeah, th- this this honor to go back and explore absolutely gave me, I guess, like In- a, Inspiration to keep going, right? Inspiration, but yeah, also just like something to, like a touchstone, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you quote, you quote uh, Chinua Achebe at one point in the book, um, you say, um, or he says, uh, we do not pray to have more money, we pray for more kinsmen. And, and you found some, right? I, I'm thinking in particular of a, of a cousin. You found Monique, right? Uh, can you yes. tell me a little bit about her, how you found her? Yes. Oh, my gosh. This was, like, so exciting. After working on um, finding this information for so long with my lovely family, who really is not that interested in this kind of thing, <laughs> it was just, like, uh, such a thrill to find somebody who was as obsessed about their family's history as I was. Um, I 
found Monique through like ancestry message boards, but also through the picture because we had both found this picture and we're trying to find information about our relatives. And once we connected, we realized that we both lived in New Jersey, less than like 40 minutes from oh, each wow. other. Yeah. And we began meeting with one another and finding these stories of our people together. So yeah, that was a wonderful ride. Do you have the book with you? Do you have the book handy? I do. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could read the opening to chapter 14. Sure. Okay. If you are going to recover the rest of your enslaved family, you will have to get a PhD in the history of their enslavers. It takes the average student 8.2 years to earn a doctorate degree, so you will need to practice persistence and patience. You will also need to forgive yourself daily. Spending this much time with people even people who are dead, even people who enslaved your ancestors, will inevitably open you to their humanity as you consider their brutality. Forgive yourself for laughing when they poke fun at each other in their letters, for your heart pangs when they lose a child to yellow fever, or your awe at the care their descendants took to preserve their 200-year-old diaries, correspondences, and hand-drawn maps of their land grants. Forgive and proceed. I was wondering, was it hard to let yourself be slightly charmed by people who enslaved your ancestors? Did you, like, catch yourself, like, becoming too enamored by them? Um, you know, I think, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I did yeah. catch myself a couple of times being, you know, very sad for the losses. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with me feeling my humanity for mm-hmm. uh, someone who, who's died. Um, and just catching myself ultimately was where those stories would take up space in my story in this book. That was where I had to kind of do my work of remembering, you know, what I'm trying to do and putting those other stories into their proper perspective. Mm-hmm. One story that you uncover um, is, is that of Warren Stewart Matthews, who was lynched, and it, and it kicks off this period of mourning. Do you think in some ways that a part of this project, part of your work, is creating space to sort of name and celebrate and mourn members of your family? Oh, absolutely. Um, particularly someone like Warren, who was killed in such a violent way and I imagine, wasn't really able to be properly mourned by his immediate loved ones. So, yeah, this is definitely a, a testimony and a, and a memorial. You, you started this project in earnest when you started a family. Have your daughters read the book? Um, that's a good question. They've read so many iterations of this book. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure they've read the final, uh-huh, the, the final, final version. Copy, yeah. But they, I should say, they've also done some of the research with me. As, oh, you put as them to kids. work, right? Yeah. I, I did put them to work, and we would kind of often couch my research trips as. Uh, family vacations. <laughs> so um, <laughs> they, they fell they, for that, huh? They, <laughs> they fell for it to a degree. After uh-huh. I think the oldest turned 13, they started insisting they on like... every trip to an archive, there should also be one to Disney. So yeah. <laughs> uh, we had to come up with some other, you yeah. know, some other ways of doing that. But um, yes, I, I mean, I couldn't ask for more supportive and loving children. 
Dion Ford. Her new book is Go Back and Get It. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th, semesteroff.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from North Dighton, Mass., is accused of leaking a trove of U.S. intelligence documents. He's facing charges under the Espionage Act. He made his initial court appearance in Boston today. Coming up, how federal officials identified the suspect and tracked him down. It's Friday, April 14th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion over false claims that Fox aired after the 2020 elections. Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky were newlyweds when they were injured in the Boston Marathon attack 10 years ago. Downs lost a leg. Kensky had to have both legs amputated. A major part of their recovery was finding meaning in their work lives. Jessica returned to Mass General as an oncology nurse. When I put on scrubs again and my badge and, you know, went into work, it was like getting a part of myself back. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito today issued an order blocking a lower court ruling that put restrictions on the abortion pill Mifepristone. Abortion rights advocates gathered in front of the court in Washington divorced support for continued access to the drug. More from NPR's Lexi Shapittle. Mifepristone has been at the center of a complicated legal battle, with courts issuing conflicting rulings about the drug. Opponents of abortion rights want the drug's FDA approval to be revoked. On the steps of the Supreme Court, abortion rights supporters said decisions about using the drug should be made by doctors, not judges. Virginia K. Solomon of the League of Women Voters said she was treated with mifepristone and another drug methotrexate when she experienced an ectopic pregnancy. And without this important life-saving combination of medication, who knows what the outcome would have been. Justice Alito's order came after the Biden administration asked the court to block the lower court ruling. 
Lexi Shapiro, NPR News, Washington. A federal judge has sentenced a Connecticut man to seven and a half years in prison for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Connecticut Public Radio's Matt Dwyer has more. Patrick McCoy was convicted of using a police riot shield to pin an officer to a door frame in a tunnel as another protester attacked the officer. A large crowd pushed forward through the tunnel, exerting more pressure on the trapped officer. The officer was bleeding from the face and screaming in pain. Federal prosecutors said the Lower West Terrace Tunnel was the site of some of the fiercest fighting at the Capitol. In a letter to the judge, McCoy's sister wrote that her brother formed his political views to avoid being cut off by their father, who was a dedicated supporter of former President Donald Trump. For NPR News, I'm Matt DeWire. Court documents are offering a glimpse into the FBI's investigation into classified document leak suspect Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old who worked as a cyber defense operations journeyman for the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Probe found many of the documents Teixeira allegedly leaked had classified markings. The Justice Department has unsealed charges against the leaders of a Mexican drug cartel. As NPR's Ader Peralta reports, the children of the notorious drug lord El Chapo Guzman are among those charged. The Sinaloa cartel used to be run by Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, but after he was extradited to the U.S. and imprisoned, his kids, the Chapitos, apparently took over. In a statement, the Justice Department says the cartel has become, quote, the largest, most violent, and most prolific fentanyl trafficking operation in the world. The Justice Department charged eight leaders, including three of El Chapo's sons, with allegedly flooding the U.S. with fentanyl over the last eight years. Six of those charged are already in jail in countries around the world. Ovidio Guzman Lopez, a top leader, was arrested by the Mexican military in January and is fighting an extradition attempt by the United States. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. We are learning more about the FBI's probe into Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira. According to an FBI affidavit released today, the social media platform Discord, where Teixeira allegedly posted the top-secret military documents, provided billing information, and that helped lead the agents to the suspect. Court documents also allege Teixeira was found to have searched for the word leak in classified government records on the day the New York Times first reported on the breach. The FBI believes that he was searching to find out whether the intelligence community yet knew who leaked the documents. The case has put a spotlight on Jack Teixeira's National Guard unit. It is the 102nd Intelligence Wing on Cape Cod. And as WBR's Todd Wallach reports, the wing is a key part of the military's intelligence work. Scott Rice is a retired three-star Air Force general. He oversaw guard units across the country including the 102nd at Otis Air National Guard Base. He says the secret of work saves lives. They have all these extensive networks and they receive a lot of data, uh, intelligence data like videos, pictures of uh, locations overseas, and they analyze it. They're an analytical tool to boil all that massive amount of information down to readable, understandable things, and then they pass that up to the to, to Pentagon to do something with it. Rice says the breach is an aberration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Governor Moore Healy is calling on U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to resign. 
Appearing on GBH today, Healy said it's outrageous that Thomas accepted luxury trips from a Republican political supporter for decades without reporting them. ProPublica reported yesterday that the Republican donor also purchased real estate from Thomas, and the justice did not report that sale is required. Healy calls Thomas's action the height of hypocrisy. Parking at Logan Airport will soon be pretty difficult. This afternoon, Massport officials announced that parking at Logan itself and at the Logan Express shuttle bus sites are already near capacity. Next week is April school vacation week, so a lot of people are traveling. Airport officials recommend passengers take public transportation to and from the airport and have someone drop them off and pick them up at Logan Express sites. Marathon Monday is just around the corner. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has an early look at what the weather may hold. So right now, Marathon Monday is looking okay. Ideal temperatures actually for runners, though spectators may be a bit cool. We'll start in the upper 40s in the morning and rise into the middle 50s by afternoon. There is the chance of showers though, so if you're lining the streets to cheer everyone on, I'd say you want to have the umbrella, raincoat, or hoodie just in case. My hope is the steadier rain will hold off until later in the day. Now the wind will be from the east, so coming in off the ocean, a headwind for runners 5 to 10 miles per hour, then shifting to the southeast and increasing a little bit through the day. And in the forecast for tonight, should fall to the mid-50s, partly cloudy, breezy, and dry. For tomorrow, partly sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-50s, clouds increasing through the day, lots of clouds and maybe showers on Sunday, again in the mid to upper 50s. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. A little bit later, we'll remember the life of Rachel Pollock, a science fiction writer who created DC Comics' first transgender superhero and who changed the way people read tarot cards. Before that, we turn to the Air National Guardsman, accused of leaking a trove of U.S. intelligence documents. 21-year-old Jack Deshira is facing charges under the Espionage Act. Today, he made his initial appearance in federal court in Boston, where a judge ordered that he remain in custody for now. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering this. Uh, he joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. So Tashir was arrested yesterday. He was mm-hmm. in court today. What's he charged with? Well, according to court papers, Tashira faces two charges here. One is for the unauthorized removal of classified documents, and the other is for the unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information. Uh, Tashira was, as you said, in, fo- in federal court this morning in Boston. I was dressed in a khaki prison uniform. Hearing was very brief. Uh, and as you mentioned, a federal magistrate judge ordered that he be held pending a detention hearing next Wednesday. What else did we learn from the charging documents that were unsealed today? Well, we learned a bit more about Tashira himself. We've previously reported that he worked at the 102nd Military Intelligence Wing at Otis uh, Air National Guard Base in Cape Cod. Court papers say Tashira enlisted in September of 2019. Uh, He holds the rank of Airman First Class and was working as a cyber defense operations journeyman at the base. In that position, he had top secret security clearance, uh, and he also had access to another realm of basically uh, more sensitive information. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's been a lot of public reporting about how the leak occurred. Uh, were there any additional details you learned today? Well, you're right. There has been a lot in the in the public realm about how these intelligence materials, just as a reminder, 
a lot of them related to the war in Ukraine, yeah. uh, how they ended up online. Um, court papers say that Tashira began posting classified information in December on a social media platform. Uh, court papers don't identify the platform, but we know, of course, that it's Discord, mm-hmm. uh, something popular With gamers, among yeah. gamers, right? Uh, initially, Tashira was allegedly just posting paragraphs of text from classified information. But then in January, according to court papers, he started posting photographs huh. of U.S. government documents that had classification markings on them. Tashira allegedly started taking photographs because he was worried that he might be discovered transcribing these documents at work. So instead of doing that, he took them to his home and was taking pictures of them. Uh, How did the authorities manage to track this leak back to Tashira? Well, the the leaked materials were out there for a while before anyone noticed in the government. But once folks in the U.S. government did catch wind that these documents were out in the wild, so to speak, they moved pretty fast. Uh, The FBI appears to have gotten a lot of information from an unnamed witness identified in court papers only as user one. Uh, User one was in the Discord group along with Tashira. User one told the FBI that uh, they'd spoken to Tashira over video chat, uh, and user one was able to actually identify Tashira for the FBI uh, based on Tashira's driver's license photo. Uh, The FBI also got records from Discord, so account and subscriber information. Mm-hmm. Uh, that includes Tashira's name, uh, his billing information, uh, an address in North Dighton, Massachusetts. And of course, it was at a home in North Dighton uh, that a heavily armed SWAT team yesterday, as we saw, rolled up and uh, ended up arresting Tashira there. There have been like a, a series of leaks over the past decade plus, right? I'm thinking about like there's WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. there's Edward Snowden. What steps is the government taking to tamp down on these leaks? Well, first off, I think it's it's important to say that this leak appears to be different in many ways from the WikiLeaks leaks and the and, and the Snowden leak, yeah. uh, including just in terms of scale, the vast scale uh, of those compared to this and the sensitivity of the materials. Um, as far as trying to prevent future leaks, President Biden today said that he's directed the military uh, and U.S. intelligence agencies to tighten up how they handle sensitive information. This has been a problem for a long time. Um, Attorney General Merrick Garland also talked about this today. Uh, and he noted, importantly, that you know there are penalties, very serious penalties for leaking classified information. And he said that this prosecution is a reminder to those people who are entrusted with protecting U.S. secrets how important it is to do so and how important it is not to spill those secrets. Hmm. NPR's Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you. Next week, opening arguments begin in the massive defamation case that pits Dominion voting systems against Fox News. Dominion wants $1.6 billion in damages. But as Colorado Public Radio's Benta Berkland reports, that damage figure may be difficult to prove. After the last presidential election, Dominion voting systems became the epicenter of false claims of a stolen election. Claims it says were spread widely by conservative networks like Fox News. Sydney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. That's to put it mildly. A judge has already ruled that statements made about Dominion on some Fox News shows were false. If the jury finds Fox liable for those lies, it will decide how much it should have to pay. Dominion, which is based in Denver, argues that the company's brand and business have been destroyed. CEO John Poulos spoke to CBS's 60 Minutes last year. People have been put into danger. Their families have been put into danger. Their lives have been upended, and all because of lies. 
it was a very clear calculation that they knew there were lies and they were repeating them and endorsing them. But to succeed in court, Dominion needs to show how the hits to its reputation weren't just hard on employees, but have also resulted in large financial losses. You're talking about economic damages and economic disturbance. So emotional feelings, hurt feelings, emotional damages, those kind of things typically are not going to enter into the calculation. Len Niehoff is a law professor at the University of Michigan. In court filings, Dominion laid out its damage claims, $16 million in profits, more than $70 million in potential business, and more than $900 million in value. But Niehoff says those claims could be challenging to prove. It can be very hard to show that people who didn't do business with you didn't do it for this reason as opposed to for some other reason. Fox News says Dominion's claims are flawed and nothing more than a money grab by the private equity fund that controls the company. It points to Dominion's stronger-than-expected revenues last year and says the company's actually flourishing. But recent moves in Shasta County, California, are a sign of what Dominion is concerned about. County supervisors there recently canceled Dominion's contract, citing debunked conspiracy theories. Still, many other conservative areas are sticking with Dominion. The real pushback is people don't want me to use machines, period. But at the end of the day, I was voted in to uphold the Constitution and uphold the laws of our state. And we're required to tabulate and we're required to have machines in the voting center. So I did what I had to do. Justin Grantham heads the Colorado County Clerks Association. He's a Republican and from a deep red county. And he recently renewed the county's contract with Dominion. He says audits show the machines are accurate and switching companies isn't feasible. Now you're talking about learning how to use the system, learning how to program the ballots in the election, learning how to just figure out the tabulation and the software and the hardware. Dominion has actually seen a net increase in the number of jurisdictions using its equipment since 2020. That's according to data from the election security nonprofit Verified Voting. CEO Pamela Smith says she's not surprised. Most jurisdictions don't change their voting systems like every couple of years, right? They change them 10 years, 15 years, if they can hold on for a really long time, they will, you know, but it's also hard to predict what happens down the road. Smith says the biggest impact likely won't be known for years after current voting machine contracts come due. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Denver. Sales of tarot cards have more than doubled in recent years. And today, we remember the person who wrote the quintessential book on tarot, Rachel Pollock. Pollock died earlier this month. She was 77 years old. She was also a revered figure for many in the fantasy and comic book worlds. Ajwa Jimabrimpong has our remembrance. Rachel Pollock helped transform tarot from a practice that was widely dismissed as an esoteric parlor trick into a way of connecting with yourself that felt personal and political. She talks about that in a 2019 YouTube interview with Masters of the Tarot. I think that for us, we were trying to kind of break the tarot free from what it had been 
and open up a whole new way of being. Pollock's book, 78 Degrees of Wisdom, came out in 1980. It made tarot less cheesy and more of a feminist practice that helped many people connect to the divine. Pollock delighted in challenging norms of gender and sexuality. In 1993, she took over the DC Comics Doom Patrol series, where she created one of the first transgender superheroes. Her name was Coagula, and her first foil was a villain named Codpiece. Since Codpiece's whole issue is being ashamed of himself and ashamed of his sexuality, um, I should have someone who's overcome shame. That's Rachel Pollack in a 2022 interview explaining Coagula's origin story on the Mega Brain Comics YouTube channel. For the many transgender people at that time, you know, the big issue was overcoming society's feeling we should be ashamed of ourselves and past and all these other kinds of terrible things. So I just invented this character. Pollock authored more than 40 books, including science fiction novels that won the Arthur C. Clarke and World Fantasy Awards. Rachel Pollock created worlds that were both gleefully bizarre and deeply spiritual. A refuge for weirdos. Without shame. For NPR News, I'm Ajua Jimma Brempong. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a couple just married starts their life together recovering from the Boston Marathon bombing where they both lost limbs. What's propelled their recovery the most in the past 10 years? Coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a successful career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. The program exceeds state licensure requirements, and the GRE is not required. Now accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. In business, the Dow fell four-tenths of a percent today, but posted its fourth straight positive week. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell about a fifth of a percent. The NASDAQ dropped about one-third percent. Marketplace has business news in about 10 minutes. It's now 620. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Red Sox are back at Fenway Park for a seven-game homestand that starts tonight with a visit by the Angels. Tanner Hulk will take the mound against Patrick Sandoval, 7-10 game time. Beautiful night tonight. Temperatures heading down to the mid-40s overnight. Should make it to the mid-50s for tomorrow and Sunday. Gradually, clouds increase tomorrow, maybe some showers. More chance of showers and heavy on the clouds on Sunday. Should be in the mid to upper 50s. Then Monday, the holiday cloudy with a chance of showers. Highs about 60. This is WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jessica Kensky and Patrick Downs were newlyweds in 2013, eager to build a life together. But everything changed that April when they went to Boylston Street to watch the Boston Marathon. They were standing near the finish line when two bombs exploded. Three people died, 17 people lost limbs. Kensky lost a leg, and so did Downs. After we were hurt, we were fully dependent on other people for everything. It was like we were children again. Their parents had to make medical decisions for them, help them in the bathroom, and help them get dressed. Downs made steady progress, but Kensky suffered one complication after another. I just had infections and falls and poor wound healing and you name it, I I had it. The leg she did not lose in the bombing was badly damaged. She was in relentless pain. Kensky was so low, she didn't even want to leave their apartment in Medford. That's when her father, who was a doctor, pitched an idea. Get out of Boston and move to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Walter Reed, a military hospital. They were civilians, but they became part of the fold. They stayed at Walter Reed for three years. They got care from doctors and therapists who were the most experienced with amputations. During that time, Kensky decided to have her second leg removed. Down says they were recovering alongside troops with wounds even more severe. It ended up being a really special place for us. It was the place where Jess was able to make really complex and agonizing decisions about her body that have allowed her to be as mobile as she is today. And it was also a place where we made these lifelong friendships with people who we would likely not have otherwise crossed paths with. I think in addition to that, I would say it was the expectation at Walter Reed that you would get back to all you were doing before and then some. And I think when that becomes the expectation, things start to come together. For example, skiing. Kensky says she didn't like to ski when she had two legs. But Walter Reed put her and Downs on a plane to Colorado with some injured veterans also in treatment, and they skied Breckenridge, not even the bunny slope. They were discharged from Walter Reed in 2017. Kensky was ready to get back to work as an oncology nurse at Mass General Hospital, and Downs wanted to get to work as a clinical psychologist. But he hit a low point. I was really in this philosophical place of you survive something, you almost die. For what reason? What am I supposed to do with all of this? And the only thing that I could really come up with is to be in service of other people. But I didn't know that I could really be of service to other people because I felt so depleted. Hmm. I was just exhausted. And I didn't want to be a psychologist who didn't have empathy. <laughs> that wouldn't work so well. Some of Down's friends worked at Home Base, the mental health program run by Mass General. It's specifically for veterans. They asked him if he wanted to do a fellowship there. It was in those moments that I started to find my purpose again and realized that all that we had experienced actually could make a positive contribution for other people. 
So these patients are vets and obviously in need of psychological help. Do you tell them that you're a marathon survivor? No, I, I haven't shared it with them. Sometimes they find it out on their own. When they Google you. Yeah, people tend to Google their therapists. Their <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it has been emotional at times when, we're, when we talk about it, but I've also found that it can be a really powerful therapeutic tool. Even though you usually don't share your experience with your patients, I wonder how that experience, having PTSD, having many physical trials to go through, how that presents itself, how it helps you, how it helps them, your patients? I'd like to think that it helps me better be aware of when someone's in a stuck pattern of thinking about the world in a negative way. I had no appreciation for the many ripple effects that trauma has. It impacts your self-identity, your relationships, your work, your leisure time, the way you see the world. I mean, it just permeates everything. For both of you, after, as you said, spending so many years under medical care, um, you're now the healers. What does that feel like? Do you think of it that way? No. I mean, I recognize that I'm in a healing role and that people are coming to me with perhaps that expectation. But for me, it really does feel like a collaborative process to help them figure out what their meaning and purpose is again. Well said. Um, I think because I'm in a little bit of a different place, you know, in this cancer world, I think sometimes clinicians can try to protect themselves, think that there's something about us that we're never going to be in that seat. But I think that my life experience thus far has shown me that it's totally random who ends up in that seat. Kensky says a few years ago, her dad was in that seat. He was the one who got them to go to Walter Reed and was a huge help in her recovery. She says he was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer and died just a year later. His death looms larger to her today than being a bombing survivor. And I think how important it is to reinforce the randomness of it, because I think we as humans can get into guilt and shame and what did I do wrong and I should have I should have gone to the doctor sooner. And I think for a lot of my patients, it's important to hold up a different mirror sometimes. It's so important, I think, for both of us to be able to bear witness to other people's suffering and to be able to validate whatever it is that they're going through and let them know that people see how hard they're working. People we've never met before have been in our corner, have cheered us on, have told our story, have listened to our story. And that's not true for most people who experience trauma. They often do it very much alone. Kensky says she's had a lot of support as she's gone back to her job as an oncology nurse. Work makes life feel normal again. When I put on scrubs again and my badge and, you know, went into work, it was like getting a part of myself back. I have had a lot of big moments in my recovery, but that's just definitely at the top of the list. I mean, it was just so important for people to see me like that again. I guess, you know, I think until we got to start putting pieces of our life back together, I felt like I was just a Boston Marathon survivor instead of and this and this and this. You know, it was being responsible again, taking care of other people, having coworkers and colleagues and friends who knew who knew me. It was work drama. Yeah. (laughs) You know, having to be responsible for something, having to show up on time. Yeah. 
having to do notes in our medical record system, you know, those things that people get annoyed about, but it's good to like have some of those annoyances back because that's what we all have in our work lives. Right. Normal humdrum. Right. Pain in the neck. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, congratulations on all that you've accomplished. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. That's nurse Jessica Kensky and her husband, psychologist Patrick Downs, 10 years after they survived the Boston Marathon bombings. Our coverage of the bombings 10 years later continues tomorrow on WBUR's Weekend Edition Saturday. Sharon Brody visits the finish line to hear how Bostonians are remembering the events of that day. You'll hear how people's reflections on the bombings changed them and the city. That's tomorrow morning starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com.